find the book of Genesis. Week four, as we've returned to the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham together. And I loved, I loved exactly what Laura said there in terms of so many times we think about worship as the time when we sing. And certainly it is that, but it is so much more than that. That as we listen to God's word now, that this is an act of worship and our response to that and how we live and lead our lives is a response of worship. But we'll look this morning at Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. This is the word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Keter-Orlay-Ormor, king of Elam, Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Senab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year of Chedorlaomor, and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephim in Eshtereth Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Sheva Karayamim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chileamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of butchermen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemies took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way, and they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, and he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. When he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And after he returned from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the king who was and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. 
And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me your persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal or strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let me say that sometimes the Bible is weird. <laughs> and by weird, I just simply mean that it can seem unusual to our 21st century American perspective. We often think that because we live in the time we live in, that we've had it all figured out. And if something strikes us as odd, that means it must be wrong. And yet, just think about it here. In Genesis 14, we see a number of things that probably strike us as odd. There's a number of kings from a number of lost kingdoms, and they're engaging in this huge war. And you see the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah lose because they fall into a pit. And Lot and everything he has is taken captive. And as if this wasn't foreign enough, someone escapes. And of all the people they go to to save the day, they go to Abram, who is called Abram the Hebrew in verse 14. And that's actually one of the first times, that is the first time the word Hebrew is ever used in the Bible. And then Abram gets together 318 of these trained men in his house, and they go and they conquer these kingdoms, and they win back Lot and his family with tons of spoils from the kingdoms. I almost imagine this like that training scene from Mulan. Some of you understand. He gets these trained people together, and they go, and they're going to conquer all of these kingdoms with this ragtag group of men in Abram's house. Abram returns and he finds two kings, the king of Sodom and a guy named Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And Melchizedek blesses the God of Abram and there's this interaction between them regarding the spoils. And we see Abraham display his faith rather than taking the riches for himself. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek and rejects the power and sum that could have been his. And to make it even more wild, Abraham's whole involvement in this is Lot's fault. This is all Lot's fault. Because last week, if you remember, Abram and Lot had this conflict over their land. They had all of these goods, all of this stuff, and they simply didn't have enough room for everything they had. So Abram offered Lot a portion of the promised land, but rather than stay in the promised land, we remember that Lot chose to go to Sodom, a place that we learned was wicked and a place that we learned, as we see in Genesis chapter 14, was a volatile place. And friends, had Lot not moved all the way to Sodom, had Lot not moved to Sodom, Abraham would likely have never been involved. And he takes this small military to battle with these kings. What an incredible passage. And yet, besides offering some very unique baby names, what else are we supposed to do with this? With this long list of very unusual names and kings and battles, it really feels like I'm reading a Lord of the Rings novel, doesn't it? With all that's happening here. What are we supposed to do? Well, first, if we ever encounter a passage like this in our own life, we read it and reread it, don't we? We look and we continue to look, but we also 
sometimes just have to keep it simple and focus in on what the passage is telling us about who God is and what God has done. And especially when we come to the Old Testament, as we'll see, God has a lot more to say about this interaction here later on in the Bible. And we'll look at some of those together. Looking at all of this, we'll see three truths about God all displayed really in Melchizedek's blessing in verse 19 and 20. And the first thing we see is that God rules over all. God rules over all. If there was anything as I read through this passage this week that stood out, I simply could not miss the fourfold repetition of the words, God most high. Four times in this passage, look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Then look at verse 19 and 20. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And then notice verse 22 leaves us without any doubt of of what's in view here. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice there you'll see, Maybe in your Bible, sometimes you'll see the the word LORD in all caps at points throughout the Bible. I know in mine, I see there when it talks about LORD that it's in all caps. This is where the divine name, where Yahweh's name is used. Though all these kings may have worshipped all sorts of so-called gods, it was Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible, that alone is God most high. And, the, and he is the God who rules over all. And I think this is clearly seen in the fact that all of these kingdoms are gone. Most of us, without having to do some deep, deep research, have no idea who these kings were, what they had, who these kingdoms were, and how rich and powerful they might have been in those days. We should take from this of the futility of power and riches and influence. The fact that we don't know who these supposedly powerful kingdoms are should be a lesson to us, not just individually, but how power and riches and influence can fade away. Friends, this isn't a political statement, but it's simply the truth. The United States of America could easily be just like Shinar or Elam, blips in the history book. That doesn't mean that we give up caring about the future or care up giving about or care or give up caring about our nation, but it should give us some perspective. Friends, four to eight years can change a lot of things, but so does four thousand years as we are separated from this passage. C.T. Studd put it so well. He gives us some application when he says, Only one life twill soon will pass, only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, these kingdoms are gone. The kingdoms of the world eventually fell, but, the God, but God's kingdom is forever. God rules over all. In fact, we see God's rule in this passage right in the battle between these kingdoms. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim 
with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Here's the key point, four kings against five. It seems like it should be pretty easy. We don't have to have a math degree to know five against four is not good odds, right? The math's pretty easy, except there was something that they didn't prepare for. Look at verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of butchermen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. No one was prepared for the pits in the ground. Now these sort of butchermen pits are basically pits of tar. And as these two kings and all their stuff fell in, they had no chance of getting out on their own. And we should be reminded what Proverbs 16.33 tells us. And this is in your notes. You can see that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That it's the God Most High who rules over all from the tiniest decision of where a pit is to the big decisions as to who wins the battle. Our God rules over all. But we also see in Melchizedek's words that God doesn't just rule over all, but he owns everything. God owns everything. Look back at what Melchizedek says. He blesses Abram, and here's what he said. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And Abraham echoes this reality in verse 22 when he says, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Possessor of heaven and earth. Friends, we all believe in the words of Genesis 1-1 that God is the creator of all things, but have we ever given much thought to the fact that God is the possessor of everything? That God owns everything. Everything you have is ultimately God's first. Your money, your time, your family, your life, your purity and holiness, everything, whatever it is, has been given to you from God. He's the one who owns it and the one who has authority over it. And this means that we're called to be stewards. Now, the subject of stewardship can become one of those things that we turn off our ears. We hear so much about it, but I think it's one of the most important principles of the Christian life. Here it is. We are simply stewards of everything we have. We are simply stewards of everything we have. And Abraham saw himself this way, didn't he? He saw himself as a steward over his family. Notice when Lot was in trouble, Abram leapt into action. And he saw his responsibility for his family when Lot was in trouble. But he goes beyond that. Abram saw himself as a steward over his bounty, over what they won from battle. And notice in verse 22 again. Look what he says. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Notice two things. First, Abraham saw himself as a steward of these possessions. And while it would have been culturally acceptable for him to keep all of it for himself, he didn't. 
Notice he says, I don't want you, king of Sodom, to get even an ounce of credit for my riches. If you remember, God had promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And Abram says, hey, king of Sodom, I don't want you getting even an ounce of credit for what God promised and what God's going to give to me. I don't want you to be able to boast at all. He says, I don't even want a thread or a sandal strap or anything from you. It's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? He saw himself as a steward over these possessions. But he also was a steward over these possessions in that he gave thanks to God through giving and gave thanks to his household through providing. Let's look at that first part. He gave thanks to God through giving. He kept the first things first. You see in verse 20 that he tithed, which means he gave 10% of the possessions to Melchizedek. He gave it back to God because he knew that it was God's first before it was his. Do we consider everything we have to ultimately be God's? Do we give back even a small portion of what he's given to us? Whether you're somebody who believes the Bible teaches that the tithe is some sort of command that that runs eternally or simply a wise biblical principle, the point is clear. Everything you have is ultimately his. And thus, giving is one of the most essential elements of good stewardship. And consider that if God calls one to give 10%, God still is allowing you to keep 90%. And so God would have us to consider, are we being good stewards of our, of our money, our time, whatever it is, in giving back to him a portion of what he's given to us. But Abraham didn't simply give 10% and then hoard everything else for himself. We see second, he gave thanks to his household through providing. He gave thanks to his household through providing. Notice what he does for the men in his camp. Verse 24 He talks about what the young men, that that he's not going to take anything except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with him. Abraham made sure that those under his care were provided for. And friends, there's so many applications here for us to think about, especially as we think about how this is a call for us to remember those in our own household. Or even beyond that, to remember the care of those who may work under us as employees. Consider this, these men who were trained men of Abraham, he makes sure that they are cared for. Do we ever give a mind to those who work for us or under us? Let me challenge those in this room who are bosses or managers or however that might work in your life. Ask yourself, how can you bless those who work under you and serve those who ultimately serve to help you live the life you live? (laughs) Many of us know we couldn't have the businesses we have if there weren't other people working under us or working around us. What can we do to make them feel loved and appreciated and provided for? Because hear me, the Christian message isn't just something for your house and the church, but it also impacts how you do business, whether you're at the top or the bottom of the organization. Hear me here. How can we bring Christian thankfulness into our office this week? How can we be good stewards of the jobs that we have and good stewards of the relationships we have with other people? He 
Abraham was a steward over these possessions, so he wanted to give thanks to God through giving and gave thanks to his household and even those who, who he was called to be over through providing. God owns everything. We're simply stewards of whatever we have. And finally, we need to consider that this text teaches that God delivers his people. We're going to spend a bit of time here. Look at Melchizedek's words. God delivers his people. Genesis 14, verse 19 and 20. Look at this. And he blessed him, Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. You see it? He is the deliverer of his people. And friends, Abraham, as we've seen, is often just like us. He is prone to forget God's word and God's promise to him. But throughout this passage, we begin to see the Genesis 12 promises begin to take shape. Look back a couple pages to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll see that God made promises to him that have been slowly working their way out and are continuing to work their way out here. Look what God says to Abram. God says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise is given. And then what do we see here in chapter 14? But Abram leading a military on behalf of his people. A na- almost as if a nation has begun to form. He's beginning to lead this military against these other nations that have come against him. And notice, God promises to bless those who bless him and to curse those who dishonor him. And I think this is most clearly seen in the contrast between the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, who's king of Salem. Melchizedek, as we've seen, came to Abram with thankfulness and blessing. But the king of Sodom's response was not only did he not reflect and not express any gratitude, but he had a very small-minded, selfish concern. Look what he says, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Abram just saved his butt. (laughs) Abram just got him out of this battle, just saved him and everything he owns, and look what he is concerned about. I want my peace. I want my piece of the deal. He was only concerned about the stuff above thankfulness for his own safety and the safety of his people. What a way to dishonor Abraham. And if you know where the book of Genesis is going, the king of Sodom's going to get a curse brought upon him for many things, but part of that will be for dishonoring Abraham. Wait for it. In chapters 18 and 19, God will keep his promise, but... The, the text really puts this emphasis on this guy named Melchizedek. And he's not simply a, a model of thankfulness for us, though he is that. The rest of God's word puts a very interesting spotlight on him. It's so interesting. There should be some things that leap off the page to us about him. Notice in verse 18, we're told that he is a king, but that he's also a priest. That seems a little unusual. That doesn't happen very often, right? Notice 
that we're told that he is the prince of Salem. Salem's the Hebrew word for peace. And if you read, most commentators believe Salem was almost undeniably the city of Jerusalem long before Israel ever came into the land. So we've got a king priest who's the king of priests over Jerusalem, and then Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. That's incredible. Abraham should, is blessing this Gentile king priest who just sort of appears and disappears. You never hear about him again throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. There's no mention of him in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy until you get to the Psalms of David. And his name begins to appear again there. I want you to find, hold your spot in Genesis 14 and find Psalm 110. Psalm 110, this is so cool what happens here. Psalm 110, and and Psalm 110, interestingly enough, is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. It's really, I I would like to say, it's God's favorite verse. He doesn't have a favorite verse, but he quotes this over and over and over and over and over again in your New Testament. Look what this happens. Look what happens. Psalm 110, and look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here we see a psalm speaking of a future king, and he says that he's going to be called Lord, which is very interesting, and he's going to rule and reign over everything. He's going to make his enemies a footstool. I love that imagery of making, he's just going to put his feet up on his enemies and everything that they own. And here we get a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And then drop down, I'd love to look more at Psalm 110 one day, but drop down to verse 4 and see this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the king he just mentioned, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What? (laughs) What is going on, David? What are you doing And so this king, the Messiah, would not simply be a king, but he would also be a priest, and he would be a king-priest like this Melchizedek guy that we saw in Genesis 14. And the Bible word for this is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, or a type for Christ. You'll see that in your notes. Melchizedek is a type for Christ. To be a type is to be a picture or a pattern or a model of something that points and usually finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And the author to to the book of Hebrews actually picks this up and spends a ton of time sort of opening this up. And you can look at this more if you're curious in Hebrews 5 to 7 later today. But let me just give you a little bit. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 to 20 says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there it is. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. He is our sure and our steady anchor. And then Hebrews 7 really dives into this. And look what Hebrews 7 says. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. 
And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, being Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Notice what it says. He says, Melchizedek points toward the true king of righteousness and the true king of peace. He appears out of nowhere. Everybody in the book of Genesis has gotten a genealogy but this guy. He just kind of comes out of nowhere, and then he disappears. And this is meant to point us toward the one who truly has no beginning and no end. He points us toward the one who holds his priesthood and his kingship forever. He points us to Jesus. And look, Hebrews chapter 7 continues, verse 23 and 24. Look at this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, he says, hey, priests die, right? Regular human priests die. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood forever because he continues forevermore. What incredible news this is for us. Hear me. You don't have to go to an earthly priest who will eventually die and leave his office behind. You don't have to enter into these endless cycles of confessions to men or man-made ceremonies that can do nothing to address the problem of sin. We have one priest in heaven who's not going anywhere, and he has come to be a sure and steady anchor for our souls. Just as Abram could find at the end of the battle Melchizedek, so Melchizedek points us towards something better and greater than himself. And verse 25 of Hebrews 7 offers incredible application. Look at this. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. God is able to save you to the uttermost. See this, we have a priest who will never die, a priest who's also king over everything, a priest who we're told is a guarantee of a better covenant, and a priest who prays for us toward the end of completely saving us. To save to the uttermost means that he's going to get us to the finish line. Have you ever thought about how the Bible speaks about salvation in in a number of senses, doesn't it? The Bible says we're saved now in the sense that we're justified and made right with God. But the Bible also says that we're being saved and being conformed more into the image of Christ. And the Bible also says that there's going to be a day when we're saved to the uttermost and resurrected from the dead and given a glorified, sinless body. To put it this way, if you are a Christian today... And if you place your faith in Jesus, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And one day you will be saved from the very presence of sin forever. And our high priest promises to get us to the finish line. As the book of Philippians says, He who began a good work in you will bring it forward to the day of completion. As Jude says, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before the presence of his glory with great joy. We are secure in the nail-scarred hands and the high priestly prayers of 
the Son of God. You'll see that in your notes. We are secure in the nail-scarred hands and in the high priestly prayers of the Son of God. See that, friends? Jesus is interceding. He is praying for you. If you're ever curious what that looks like, I'd encourage you to write down John chapter 17 and go and look at that as Jesus, before his crucifixion, is there praying, and he's actually praying for us because he says, I pray now for those who, are, who will believe in the future. And so there's prayers that are for you here in this room today that he prayed, and he says, I pray that those who believe in the future will be with me. And let me tell you something. Our prayers often may not get answered because we ask with all kinds of motives and we're not always sure of what God's will is. But let me tell you, the Son of God, when He prays, friends, His prayers get answered. And when He prays toward the end that we will be with Him forever, it means that we who are in Jesus will persevere to the end. We will make it to the end. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be difficult or that our lives aren't going to have struggles. But see this, Abraham, in his joy, worshipped God, gave generously, and committed to live wholeheartedly after he encountered Melchizedek. How much more should we, with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory, worship in spirit and truth, give intentionally and sacrificially, and commit our lives to the one Melchizedek pointed to? Genesis 14 is a reminder that our God rules over all, that he owns everything, and that in his mercy and love, he's made a way of deliverance for us. And friends, he can deliver you from the tyranny of sin. Many of us today are like Lot. We're lost and we've been taken captive But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to set you free from your captivity to sin and to deliver you. Again, not without battles and struggles, but he has promised a day of deliverance. The Bible tells us that Jesus has taken captivity captive. That he has given the death a death sentence so that we would no longer need to be enslaved to the fear of death any longer. Because he has died and risen again, we who are united with Jesus have spiritually died and risen again, dead in sin, alive in Christ. But also one day our bodies are going to go in the ground, but he's going to return one day and bring them on up out and transform them and body and soul will be united. And friends, Genesis 14 is far more than just a sort of unusual account for us. There is so much incredible truth here for you and I to consider One day we must stand before this God who owns everything and give an account for our life. And what will be our hope on that day before a holy and just God who's given us everything we have when we've, he's got to give an account for how did you use what I've given to you? And friends, we will stand before him and give an account in the only way of rescue from from the wages of our sin, which is death, is to look to Jesus who has died in our place, lived a perfect life in our place. He was buried and he rose again from the dead and he offers to any who would turn today from their sin in themselves and place their faith in him. He'll be king over their life. He'll be a priest in heaven and he'll be the, the prophet of God speaking through his word to you. 
He will be your all in all, and his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient and enough to save you from your sins and to begin the process of transformation in your life. If you have not encountered this Jesus, you can do so this morning. Right where you are, you can call out to him, or you can chat with me after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about what it means to know Jesus. But we should also think as a room of people who predominantly claim to know him, how are we living in light of encountering our great high priest? Greater than Melchizedek, the one greater than Melchizedek has come. And how will we live in light of that? May we look to God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who has delivered us from all of our enemies, and may we walk in newness of life together. Let's pray. Father God, you are good. Thank you for your goodness and kindness toward us. Lord, thank you for stories about battles and wars, for for a guy named Melchizedek, and that you would use him to paint a picture for us of who you are, that he would be a type, a pattern, a model for us, that your king of righteousness, your king of peace, You're without beginning, without end. And that you stand now as a priest forever, making intercession for us. And you are saving us to the uttermost. Lord, we're thankful that we are secure in your hands. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody within the sound of my voice this morning that doesn't know you, that they would take the step of faith into your hands to know you and love you. But I also pray that your word would encounter your people in such a radical way today that we would live differently, give generously, and walk in hope and peace and newness of life in the days ahead. We're thankful that you're not going anywhere, that you're in the process of making your enemies a footstool. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's stand together. We're going to sing... Start off with the chorus of Egypt. We're going to sing that into the bridge. It just seems to be a perfect way to end um, what Pastor has just told us today. We are not alone. He will deliver us, and he is there with us, and he will fight for us. Amen? You're the God who fights for me. Lord of every victory, hallelujah, hallelujah. You have torn apart the sea, you have led me through the deep, hallelujah, hallelujah. You're the God, you're the God who fights for me, Lord of every victory,
because you stepped in because you stepped into my egypt and you took me by the hands and you marched me out in freedom into the promised land and now i will not forget you god i'll sing of all you've done death is swallowed up forever by the fury of your love because you stepped into my egypt and you took me by the hand and you marched me out in freedom into the promised land and now i will not forget you god i'll sing of all you've done death has swallowed up forever by the fury of your love for me, Lord of every victory, hallelujah, hallelujah, you have torn apart the sea, you have led me through the deep, hallelujah, hallelujah, you're the God, you're the God who fights for me. before we close with our benediction. Genesis 14 was a call and is a call to generosity. So I would call you to consider how the Lord may use you in the days ahead through your giving to give toward not just the ministry that, that we do here, but even toward the building that you're standing in that is about that close to getting paid off. And I would encourage you just to consider between maybe now and Easter, what could you do above and beyond uh, your regular giving in generosity for the glory of God to see uh, the debt finished here so that God can move us into our next season or whatever that may look like. So I encourage you to think about that uh, in the days ahead. And of course, you can always give online or through uh, texting any amount to 84321. And we close with this benediction from Hebrews chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Amen.